You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So at the start of this morning, I want to ask you a question. And when I do, I want you to take a few minutes, a few seconds, and really think about the question. I want you to use your imagination and, and try to picture what I'm asking you. Okay, here's the question. What is the good life? What is the good life? I want to propose to you this morning that whether you've thought about it in detail or not, you have a vision of the good life. And it is the most dominant and consistent force for why you do what you do. The good life for each of us is how we envision the ideal picture of human flourishing. It's what we think when we imagine life lived well. The, the good life is an image or a picture that's held out in front of us as a goal. And believe it or not, everything that we love and, and every action that we take is directed toward achieving that goal because there, when we achieve that goal, that's where we can be happy. The good life is what we spend our entire lives pursuing. And Psalm 73 is all about this pursuit. And I think there are some lessons here for us. I think the pursuit of the good life in Psalm 73 teaches us something for our own pursuit. And what I'd like to do this morning is show you three major lessons for the pursuit of the good life that I think are absolutely necessary. If the pursuit of the good life is like a journey, these are three lessons slash milestones that must be part of that journey. And I, I want I mean, to, I mean this, okay? We will never experience the good life without these three things. All right, now I'm going to leave it to you to be the judge for yourself if you think that's true, but I want you to know that I'm preaching today under that conviction. These are necessary absolutely for us to understand, to appreciate, to experience the good life. And before we get started and dig in, I want to pray again and ask for God's help. So Father, in this moment, as Pastor Mike has prayed and as our singing and worship has led to, to hear, we do ask that you would do through the preaching of your word only what you can. Work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to make them open and receptive to you. Break the enchantment of our idols. Silence the distraction of our anxieties. Defeat the schemes of the enemy. We confess that we are a people in need of change. And in this moment, by your grace, we surrender to you, our author, our sovereign, our God. We ask that you do whatever you want 
for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here we go in Psalm 73. In pursuit of the good life, we must, number one, recognize our broken perspective. Look at verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now remember that the prayers of David are ended. We saw that last week. This in Psalm 73 is a Psalm of Asaph. And nobody really cares about Asaph, okay? Like we, we don't really care who, who he is. We can read about him in, in Kings. We can read about him in Chronicles. He was a Levite. He was a, a worship leader. There are at least 12 Psalms connected to him. But nobody names their kid Asaph, right? Like, he's, but by all accounts, I think we can say that Asaph is like a, a stand-in for the average Israelite. He's, I'm, I'm just going to call him the psalmist, okay? That makes most sense, the psalmist. He's meant to be here the everyman. And we're supposed to connect with him. I think we do. I think that a lot of us can understand where he's coming from here. We, we understand the situation that he's in because he knows the truth about God. We see that. But he, he doesn't think that truth applies to him. He says God is good. He knows that. He knows God is good. God is good to Israel. God is good to the pure in heart. All that is true. But for him, verse 2, doesn't apply. He, he sees himself as an unfortunate exception. He, he sees himself as an outlier. He's able to think and he's able to say right things about God. He, he goes to church. He knows the lingo. He can hang with all the jargon, but he feels like he's on the outside looking in. And I think sometimes we can feel that way. If we're honest, like sometimes we can feel like everybody else is doing okay but me. Because it's just too complicated. It's too complicated. Sometimes we can feel like we're always on the brink of losing it. Almost stumbled. Nearly slipped. That's what he says here. And I think we can understand where he's coming from in verse 2. But then in verse 3, he explains that the reason for his struggle was because he was envious of the arrogant. He saw the prosperity of the wicked, and he wished that he had what they had. And although he's speaking in the past tense here, he's speaking about a way he used to be. After verse 3, it's almost like he gets swept back up in a whirlwind of complaint. And he goes on to describe the wicked in verses 4 to 12. And, and what he says here is, it's not necessarily untrue, but it is embellished. Like he's, he's being emotional here. This is what it feels like. He says the wicked have no pains until death. Like, really? 
The, the wicked have no trouble at all, ever. And he say, yeah, their car never breaks down. Their kids never get hurt. Their team never loses. Their grass is always green. Like that dark green, lush, awesome green, just... That's the, He says, look, the wicked, they don't have problems like we normal folks do. And they're, wic and they're wicked. That's, the, that's his point. Everything goes right for the wicked, and they hurt people. And worst of all is that they shake their fist at God. They, they strut around like God doesn't even exist. Verse 12 is his conclusion. He says, behold, these are the wicked always at ease. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Look, things... He says, things just get better and better and better for the wicked, but things get worse and worse and worse for the righteous. And the psalmist says here, it's not fair. It's not fair. Have you ever thought that? It's not, just not fair. In verse 13, I think we can track with this spiral that's happening. The psalmist says that he has lived righteously. He's kept his heart clean. He's, he's washed his hands. He has done what God wanted, but he says, it's all been in vain. And this is, I think, his, his lowest moment. We can hear his despair. The psalmist, the psalmist says here, that is all pointless. The wicked flourish, the righteous suffer, and everything is stupid. It's like Ecclesiastes here. This is rock bottom for the psalmist, but in verse 15, he, he comes to. And in verse 15, he speaks again as if he's looking back at the past. And he says in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, in verse 15, the psalmist has found enough footing to look back at his time of struggle, to realize that he was off, and to be glad that he didn't express what he just went through to everyone. In other words, in verse 15, he's saying, if I had tweeted all the stuff that went through my mind in the midst of my struggle, I would have messed up a lot of people. He was on the edge of deconstructing. And he has enough footing here to say, it was a good thing I didn't start a blog about it. That's what he's saying. Because if he had, he knows, he would have led people astray. 
which means this. What's, what's happening here is that he's admitting in this moment, verse 15, he's admitting that he was not thinking straight. He recognizes here that he had a broken perspective. And this is absolutely necessary in our pursuit of the good life. It is part of honest self-understanding. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes the way we frame reality is skewed. And get this, if the best place is to not be there, if, if the best place is to not have a broken perspective, then the second best place is to have a broken perspective and know it. The worst place is to have a broken perspective and be oblivious to it. Tracking with that? The, the worst place is to say in verse 13 that everything is pointless and to not know that you're wrong to say that. So see, in verse 15 is where the psalmist comes to the second best place. And here's the thing, when it comes to our growth, in self-understanding, which is very important. When it comes to our learning more about how we're shaped to see reality and, and how we engage relationships, the more we get honest with ourselves, we cannot be afraid of second best place. Because when we're honest with ourselves, like when we're really doing the work and we're getting in there and we're trying to figure out why are we wired the way we are? Why do we see things the way we see things? Why do we react the way we react? When we, when we do the work and start pressing in there, we're going to find areas of brokenness in our stories at a pace that change cannot match. And so we have to be okay with second best place. We, we have to be okay that he's still working on me. You understand? There, there is still room for us to grow. We are not yet what we should be, brothers and sisters. And the change that we need, the growth that we need, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen like that. And that's okay. We have to be okay with second best place. There are times when our perspective is broken and, and in pursuit of the good life, the first thing we have to do is, is to recognize, recognize that broken perspective. Come to that second best place. All right, here's the second thing. That was the first, recognize our broken perspective. Now here's the second thing, the second lesson in pursuit of the good life. We must, number two, remember that God is real. Verse 16, 
But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. See, if you begin to recognize your broken perspective, I want to tell you, it's a lot to take in. And the hardest part, I think, about recognizing broken perspectives is that you're not completely off. Like, you're wrong about some things, but you're not wrong about everything. The the wicked do prosper, and the righteous do suffer. That's That's an observation. And that's an observation that the people of God have been able to make over centuries. And we could come up with examples today of that, of the wicked prospering and of the righteous suffering. But if we were to be more precise, we'd say it like this. Some of the wicked prosper for now. Some of the righteous suffer for now. But there's more to the story. And to say that there's more to the story is to say that there's another perspective. And that perspective, the one that we need is God's perspective. And that's what happens in verse 17. And this whole thing's a mess for the Psalms. It's, it's overwhelming for him. It's confusing. It's frustrating. And he's He's tired of it. He's exhausted. He's wearied. Verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God is the place of God's presence. In the Old Testament, remember, God was the Holy One of Israel who dwelled in their midst, in the heart of the temple, in the sanctuary. And so to be in God's sanctuary was to be close to God. And so the psalmist here, who is a guy like us, when he went close to God, that's when he remembered that God is real. If distance leads to distortion, closeness leads to clarity. To be close to God To remember God's realness then moves us beyond shallow acknowledgement and empty words, but this is where we begin to see everything in light of Him. Everything in reality, our every way of thinking and seeing and moving, everything now has God always at the center. When we remember that God is real, we remember that He sees it all and we want to know, we want to know. When we know God is real, we want to know what he thinks. What what has he said? What has God said about this? Look, I, I I don't ever want to think about a single thing in life until I remember that God is real. I don't want to think of anything until I remember that. Which is why for me, for me, the first thing I do every morning is hurry to his word. I don't need the headlines. I I don't need to check my calendar. I don't need to peek at my email because I have woken up 
by God's grace as a broken man who is prone to broken perspective, what I need is to hear from God. So I run to his word. I need to remember that he's real. I I, want to then get in on his praise. I want to join the chorus of his praise. I want to open my heart to his will. I want to draw near to his presence. I want to walk in the joy of his salvation. And when we're close to him, when we remember him, there's the place where we see rightly to repent sincerely and repent sincerely to see rightly. This is verses 18 to 21. Look at this. When the psalmist remembered God, that's when he discerned the end of the wicked. He got the fuller story. Verse 18, truly God, verse 18, truly God's going to judge the wicked. He won't let them stand. He'll make them fall to ruin. He'll destroy them and sweep them away. And then their present prosperity will seem like a faint dream. Look at verse 21. This is where he looks back on his broken perspective and he repents. See, the psalmist has been honest with himself and now he gets honest with God. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, which I think is a good word to describe his struggle in verses 2 to 14. He was bitter. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Y'all ever been honest with God like that? God, I was an idiot. I was wrong. God, I was wrong and I was stubborn about it. I dug in my heels. In fact, God, I was, my heart was so closed off to you that I became like a beast toward you. Unaffected. I, I was acting like an animal. I can assure you, you will never be able to be honest with God like that unless you know that God loves you. You won't. You won't. When when God comes to us and he asks us, like he asked Adam, where are you? Which is something that God does. I want you to, to know that. If, if we're drawing close to God, if we're aware of the presence of God, if we're walking in the nearness of God every day, God asks us, where are you? And when God asks you, where are you? You don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. And and we don't have to hide from God because our guilt and our shame have been overcome. 
That's the difference that Jesus makes, see. Jesus took our fear and our guilt and our shame upon himself. And when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he put to death everything that keeps us from God. Look, everything in our lives that would make us want to hide from God, and we have them, right? Everything in our lives that would make us want to hide from God, Jesus took it. He took it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. God is now our Father, and He loves us, which means we can be honest with Him. And when we're honest with God is when we break through to hope. We can say, yeah, I was wrong, God. I was wrong. I've been a mess recently. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Held, guided, received. There's a contrast here to the wicked in the previous verses. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 17. That, look at that last word in verse 17 there, end. In the Hebrew, the word there for end in verse 17 and the word afterward in verse 24, they, they sound the same. It's meant to be a connection here. The psalmist is saying, in the end, the end, the wicked will be destroyed. But in the end, I am received to glory. In the end, the wicked are destroyed, but I am received to glory. See, this is the right perspective. What's happening here, he's not just, the psalmist is not just seeing the fuller story, he's seeing the end of the story. In uh, a good story, a good book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which a few of us are reading this summer, there's this scene when Christian, who's the main character, he's at this place called the Palace Beautiful, which is an amazing scene. I want to pack it all, but he's at this place called the Palace Beautiful, and he's talking with some other pilgrims about how he became Christian. He's, he's telling his story of how he was converted and how he became a new person, and they ask him there if he ever, he's, he's a Christian, he's Christian, they ask him, do you ever have to deal with your old way of seeing? Are there times, they want to know, when he still has to bear with his broken perspective. And he says, all the time. <laughs> and they say, well, are, are there any moments when those things are vanquished, which at other times are your perplexity? How do you overcome the broken perspective so ingrained in your mind in order to see rightly. That's what they want to know. And Christian says, the times are more seldom than I'd like, but they are to me golden hours. 
And one of the ways that he gets there, he says, one of the ways that Christian gets to these golden hours, to that right perspective, is when my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going. That will do it. In other words, Christian says, I begin to see rightly when I think about the end of the story. You get that? Look, don't forget where we're going, okay? Don't forget where we're going, church. In Psalm 73, like Christian, the psalmist here, he realizes, he, he sees now where everything is headed. I'm held by God. I'm guided by God. I will be received by God. I know the end of the story. And when we remember the end of the story, we see rightly. And we see rightly when we're honest with God and we're honest with God when we remember that God is real. And that now brings us to our third lesson. In pursuit of the good life, number three, we reorder, we must reorder our heart's affections. The psalmist now in verse 25 is faced with ultimate reality. Verses 25 to 28. In verses 25 to 28, the psalmist here sees things as clearly as they could be seen this side of heaven. Derek Kidner, who's one of our favorite commentators on the Psalms, he says that this passage is unsurpassed, brief as it is, in the record of man's response to God. Psalm 73, verses 25 to 28, is a golden hour for the psalmist. And here, in this golden hour, is where the affections of his heart are put in order. Now, another word for affections is love. Love is an action of the heart. We love from our hearts. And the ancients of church history would tell us that our fundamental problem, our fundamental problem as sinners is that our hearts are flawed. And so we have what's called disordered affections. Disordered affections means that we tend to love the wrong things in the wrong way. In other words, because of our disordered affections, we love lesser things more than God. That's our problem. But that's not what's happening here. What we see happening in verse 25 is what St. Augustine in the fourth century calls a well-ordered heart. It's to love the right thing to the right degree, in the right way, with the right kind of love. You see what he says here? Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. This is a man whose searching has stopped. 
He has found his ultimate goal. What Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century described as that goal we pursue that so fulfills our desire as to leave nothing else to be desired. No more idols now. They will not do. All the substitutes are seen for the sham they are. Give me God, he says. Give me God. I want God. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. Give me God. Give me God, says the worthy disciple. Not because he loves father or mother or son or daughter less, but because he loves God more more than his comfort, more than his career, more than his capabilities. He loves God more with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, which he knows is feeble, feeble. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. And one of the kids just got poop everywhere. Another kid found a dead mouse outside and brought it in the kitchen and put it on the clean kitchen towel. And the basement's leaking again. We can't figure out what... And I didn't sleep well last night. I have this weird pain in my, in my leg. I don't know what, I, does that happen when you, you just sleep wrong and you have an, you're injured in your sleep. <laughs> Can God be Psalm 73, 25 for us in real life? That's the question. Can he be Psalm 73, 25 for us in real life? And here's the thing, he must be, because all we have here is real life, you see. That's all we got here is real life. And I think that's the honesty of verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. What a juxtaposition in this golden hour, soaring with God in his mind. And he remembers himself, I am a broken man. I get it wrong sometimes. I will probably die one day. But God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. God is my everything. We're not, we're not saying that theoretically. God is my everything, truly. What do I have that I did not receive from him, including my very life? 
And if I received even my very life from him, how could I not love him more than life itself? For what is life without him? What good would life be apart from his presence? For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Hell is that. Moses knew, which is why he said, God, if you don't go with us, don't let us go. True life is to be with God. And everlasting life is to be with God forever. Many people spend everything they've got running from him in search of the good life. All those things about the wicked that I envied, none of those things really matter. That's not what I want. But for me, it is good to be near God. Or another way to say, verse 28, but for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is the good life. God is not merely one piece of the puzzle. It's, it's not a bunch of stuff that then also includes God. Jesus is not the chaplain of your American dream. God is the ultimate good. And to have him leaves nothing else to be desired truly. But now all other things are subordinate to him and to be desired for his sake. Augustine in the fourth century again put it like this. He said, he loves God too little who loves anything together with God, which he loves not for God's sake. You can go read that again later. This is the reordering of our heart's affections, the reordering of our heart's affections. God is first and highest, and everything else is directed toward Him. The good life is to have God, and it's to have all other things Godward. I think that's the most important sentence of the sermon. The good life is to have God and to have all other things Godward. That is the true ideal picture of human flourishing. That's, that's the goal. And that's what we're looking for. That is actually what we really want. And I'm not telling you this as a law to attain, okay? Reordering your heart's affections does not mean that you should try harder and do better and improve your life. No, it does not mean that, okay? It means come rest. Aren't you tired of all the searching? Rest is an invitation to rest. God is your refuge. He is the end of your pursuit. 
The nearness of God is our good. And so in pursuit of him, in pursuit of God, we recognize our broken perspective. We remember that God is real and we reorder the affections of our hearts to put him first. And we hope for the day when our experience of his nearness is uninterrupted and unending. See, what, where we're headed is not just a golden hour, it's a golden eternity. And that's what brings us now to this table. Because this table is a table of fellowship. We come to this table to remember Jesus, to remember that he died for us, he the righteous for us the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God so that we would be with God forever. There is a bigger feast that awaits us. And this little meal here is meant to point us there. If ever we should lose our way on this journey, if ever we might deny his grace, this table reminds us of the price he paid for us to be with God. This table, simple as it is, it reminds us where we're going. And so this morning, if you trust in Jesus, if the nearness of God is your good, we invite you, come eat and drink with us. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Jesus, you must be exhausted. Trust him today. Put your faith in Jesus today. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.